Hi, I'm Shannon. And I'm Wanda. And this is the Once Upon a Patriarchy podcast. Uh, So, we are here once again to bring you another wonderful episode in season one of Greatness. (laughs) The talent I have. (laughs) Um, And today we are going to talk about sleeping beauty. I, I, I got so much to say about this. <laughs> so much to say. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. So today we are going from, of course, Disney. We're going to be pulling from Disney's work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is, yeah, it is work. That is Sleeping Beauty. And we're also going to cross-reference that with Maleficent, as well as having our fairy tale expert here in the studio, Shannon Tell us a little bit more about the origins of the story. And we are also joined by another amazing guest, one that Shannon will introduce, what I like to call Magnificent. Take it away, (laughs) Shannon. Uh, Today we are joined by Meg Basong. By day, Meg is the Director of Sexual Assault Prevention and Response at Williams College and one of the founding leadership council members of the Campus Advocacy and Prevention Professionals Association, for whom she currently co-chairs the Legislative Advocacy and Professional Standards Subcommittee. She is part of the Berkshire County Women's Commission and Northern Berkshires for Racial Justice, where her organizing focuses on racial justice work, especially its intersections with prison abolition and reimagining community safety as residing with citizens and not police. She is good at social media, cooking, and using feeling words. (laughs) Welcome, Magnificent. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. Uh, We are going to start out with having Shannon give us some backstory on the origin of the, what we now know as Sleeping Beauty. And we're also going to talk through a couple questions. I have three questions that I ask every guest and it goes in a variety of directions from there. So, Shannon? All right. So there's there are three major versions of the Sleeping Beauty story. One is an Italian version, The Sun, the Moon, and Talia, and that was from somewhere around 1634, 1636. Then you have Charles Perrault's The Sleeping Beauty in the Woods, and that was 1697. And then you have the Grimm Brothers, Briar Rose, and that was around 18, sometime 1812 to 1857, sometime in there. The Basile version, the Sun, the Moon, and Talia, there's no curse um, set by a fairy or anything like that. Basically, what you have is that this wealthy man has his daughter's fortune told and finds out she's going to fall into a sleep like death or she's going to die. She'll incur great danger from a splinter of flax. That's what the the curse is, or that's what the fortune is. Mm-hmm. So they, the father, uh, forbids any flax, hemp, any material of anything like that be in the house, and thinks he can avoid the danger. So Talia grows up, and of course, like sees a spindle which she's never seen before, goes running after it, and gets a splinter of flax under her nail and falls down dead on the ground. Wow. So they set her up with the whole, you know, body in a in a bedroom kind of thing. Her father leaves and tries to move on with his life. And time passes and a king 
happens upon her and she's super beautiful and she won't wake up and blood courses through his veins. Don't do this to me. Don't yeah. play with me. No. So afterwards he, he leaves. No. And, yeah. No. Blood okay. courses through his veins. Nah. Yeah. Meh. Mm, Meh. Yep. I don't, I feel like that's a euphemism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that might not be really what that means. Yeah. I think there might be like, Blood coursing through my veins has never made anyone pregnant. <laughs> Just saying. Oh, Abstinence-only psycho-education. That's why it failed us. <laughs> right. Yes, they were victims of abstinence-only education in, uh, in Italy at that time. So, yeah, and she's, like, dead. Right. Like, the fact that yeah. daddy propped her up in a room and then was like, I'm out. Mm-hmm is an issue like that was something i was going to talk about but now you didn't put a whole nother like situation and just dude shows up and is like hey first how you walk in somebody's house like oh, she, yeah. she's not kept out in the woods in an no. encased in case in glass she's in a, she's in a residence right so i mean it's a, a abandoned <sighs> country mansion it's still a house <laughs> it belongs to somebody you just right? walking up see look yeah he's trying he's like chasing after a falcon He's chasing after one of his hunting falcons and he finds this, you know, he he believes she's asleep and then he calls out to her. She doesn't wake up. So he's like, opportunity is not a lengthy visitor, which is an into the woods quote, but applies to many princes. Rape is so old. It is so old. There's a, a translation. I don't know who did the translation, but there's a translation online and it says he felt his blood course hotly through his veins. He lifted her in his arms and carried her to a bed where he gathered the first fruits of love. Shut up. This is probably not the last time, and it's certainly not the first, when the dark origins of most fairy tales reveal themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So she gives birth to twins. Fairies take care of them and put them on her. For some reason, they're fairies. And put them on, uh, bring them to, to the breast to, to suckle. Mm-hmm. And the one of them bites her and wakes her up. So I'm not going to finish telling that story. Cause Is there's... that true love kiss? Does it count as like a true love kiss? True love had nothing to do with any of these. Like true love comes around um, much later. Like, this much, is much worse later. than any of the other ones previous. I, yeah. Okay. I'm ready. Mm-hmm. The Sun, the Moon, and Talia, it's all about the rape. In Sleeping Beauty, there was a Sleeping Beauty in the woods. You start getting different elements in the tale. So that's when you start getting the curse and the fairies. And in this case, it's fairies invited to be godmothers. So there's seven fairies invited to be godmothers. So they'll give the princess presents. And they don't realize that there's an eighth fairy in the kingdom. Nobody's seen her in 50 years. And they just assume she's dead. So nobody invites her. Again, the thing, check on your people. Like, right? why you just... All right, keep going. I'm they fine. say, like, oh, maybe she's, you know, dead or bewitched. Let's just not invite her to the party. So they don't invite her, and then she shows up, and they don't have enough place settings that are made of gold and fancy. And so she's like, you didn't invite me, and now you're giving me, like, the crappy silver. <laughs> like, this is like an episode of Housewives of Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. So she curses the baby to prick her finger on a spinning wheel and fall down dead. Somebody changes the curse. And 
but the princesses never sent away. The spindles are, or the, the spinning wheels are. Mm-hmm. And then one day she's like wandering through the castle and comes across a, a tower room. This must be the most ginormous castle, by the way, because she comes across a room she's never been to before and meets this woman who's this old woman who's spinning and has never heard of the king's edict. So I'm like, is this a castle or is this a city? What's going on? <laughs> I'm so confused. So she pricks her finger and then immediately the good fairy who ameliorated the curse is like, she's in a different country, but she's like, it's happened. And she immediately knows and she rushes back and there's this whole thing about how she's like, she meets a dwarf with seven league boots and they, it's a whole thing. What? What? I know. I know. Just random adventure. Good fairy. It, it, it has nothing to do with the rest of the story, but it's very typical of pro that there would be these like random asides that okay. hint at like other amazing adventures. Okay. So she comes rushing there and she's like the princess can't sleep on her own so she puts the rest of the castle to sleep Mm. with the princess and the curse has been ameliorated too it'll just be a hundred years no true love's kiss instead of dying she'll go to sleep for a hundred years so the king and queen kiss their daughter goodbye the fairy puts all of the servants to sleep because apparently they have no lives outside the castle right and so it's fine if they wake up in a hundred years and everyone outside the castle that they know and love is gone right. Listen, capitalism right <laughs> so king and the queen leave everybody else goes to sleep a hundred years go by and the king's son um, oh the the after about 50 years the throne passes to another family. <laughs> So it's still the same kingdom, right? And like brambles and things have grown up around the castle. And the king's son hears that there's a sleeping beauty in the woods. And so he goes into the woods and all of the briars and thorns, everything parts before him because it's been a hundred years. And so he walks into her room and she opens her eyes and she's like, I love you. You happen to be present. Shut up. Yeah. And then this is, there's this thing that the Sun, the Moon and Talia shares with the pro version that isn't in any of the later versions. But the first version I read as a kid was the pro version. So I was super confused when I read later <laughs> versions. So the the king's son doesn't tell anybody that he's got this girlfriend in a castle in the woods. And they get married with her people. And oh, wow. she has they have kids. They have two kids. And for like two years, he's going home and just being like, I had a great hunting trip to his mom and his dad. And yeah. And the queen's kind of like... <laughs> So he's got like this secret family and then he and he doesn't ever bring them home. And I'm I'm reading this and I remember thinking like why isn't he bringing them home? Well, the queen has ogre lineage and oh. she likes to eat the babies. Oh. So when the king dies and the prince becomes king, there's a lot of kings. Uh when the prince becomes king, he brings his family in, his wife and his two kids, and then and then he goes off to war and he leaves his mama in charge. Oh, no. And mama's like, I'm going to eat me some babies because it's what she does. This is so absurd. Like, this is ridiculous. Oh, my goodness. So then the kids are named like Dawn and Day. And okay, so that's not- Queen Mama wants to eat the babies. And she's telling the steward, like, bring me the flesh of the child. And the steward's like, eh, not so into the baby killing. So the steward, <laughs> like, keeps like he's stealing one baby, one, one toddler and like secreting the child off with his wife. And it's like, don't tell anyone. And then he's got to do the other one. So he takes that child. And then the Queen Mama is like, yeah, I want the, the princess Sleeping Beauty. Let, let's let's have her for dinner. And he's like, I don't know what I'm going to substitute. So each time he's feeding the queen, 
like game and saying this is the flesh of a child and she's buying it now he's like sleeping beauty's kind of big like i don't know what i'm gonna do with her like i might just have to kill her because i don't know what i can substitute (laughs) and he goes to kill her and she's like my children are dead please do kill me because i want to be with my children he's like oh gosh no your kids aren't dead they're they're not what So he sends her, secrets her off with his wife. Yeah. What? <laughs> this is craziness. And it also gives you some some ideas of why perhaps Disney has made certain editorial choices. Mm. There's a whole thing. The king comes, like the queen mama finds out and she's like, ah, I'm going to kill you all. And she's having her homicidal thing and, and the king comes home and he's like, no. And she throws herself into a vat and dies and the king's like my mama died and then you know sleeping beauty's like get over it and they all live happily ever after so that's like there's those versions and then the grims come along in the 1800s and and they're collecting the um german version and by that point the story has changed a little bit now there's 13 fairies instead of 12 they invite 12 because they only have 12 golden place settings and and so they don't invite the 13th because they don't have a golden place setting. She's insulted. She shows up. She's like, y'all slighted me. Curse the princess. They banish all of the spinning wheels from the kingdom. Happens anyway. And But again, it's the when the curse is, is lessened, it's the 100 years. There's no true love. Hmm. So basically, it's a 100-year sleep yet again. And so this time, though, princes are like, the, the briars grow up. The whole castle goes to sleep around her, this time including the king and the queen. And a briar hedge grows up around uh, everything. And all these, like, idiot princes are like, I will win my way to the castle. And so they try and cut their way through. And so their bodies, like, they die. And then their bodies are, like, all through the wood. And so it's like this castle of corpse, this castle surrounded by thorns and corpses so romantic Mm. and then it just so happens that another idiot prince is wandering through when a hundred years has passed and that idiot prince gets through and marries her you know kisses her awake and marries her the disney version is actually taking they're actually taking most of their plot points or how they structured the story because everything from the the folklore versions is pretty grim like, and I don't, I'm not trying to pun. Like, it's right. pretty gross. Yeah. Right? It's like rape. It's Completely. corpses in, in the woods. It's it's not pretty. No. And so what Disney bases their animated version on is the Tchaikovsky 1850 Ballet, which centers the conflict between the evil fairy and the good fairies and makes it all about them and the good fairies trying to get Prince Philip to her. And I think he's called Prince Desire in the, in the ballet. But, but that's where you get where Disney went for a source was like, okay. Prince Desire. Prince Desire. Once again, there's an artificial scarcity narrative <laughs> that is solved only by pitting two women against each other. Yeah. Only. Yeah. Only. Mm-hmm. So they're like, we can't do any of this other stuff. Let's make it about how women hate each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Because making it about how men rape women they find in the woods. Unconscious. Yeah. Or in abandoned country mansions. That don't belong to them. Yeah. Shannon, you always... I bring the fun. You always bring the fun. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> 
Okay. I'm, I'm, I am switching gears, like, because <laughs> I, I must in order for me to continue on in this podcast and yet in life, I am going to switch gears. So let's talk about, gosh, let's talk about Sleeping Beauty and let's talk about Maleficent. What year did Sleeping Beauty make its Disney debut? I believe it was 1959. Oh, wow. Really? Ha. Ha. Okay. Like just after Snow White, right? It's one of the early. Well, Snow White, I believe, was 1937. And each of these just took a really long time, right? Because you got to remember, they were hand drawn. Which is why they used the same same man form (laughs) in quite a few of the original, right? Mm-hmm. Disney animation. Well, and they did other films, but mm-hmm. I think I think you're right, Meg. I think it was the the second fairy tale film because they did like Fantasia and other things in there. So let's start. Oh, Fantasia, Fantasia. Let's start with yeah. Let's start with Sleeping Beauty. So, Meg, what are some of the some of the things that stood out for you in? Sleeping Beauty. And I guess we can also just kind of cross-reference it with Maleficent. Let's talk about both. What are some of the things that stood out for you while you were um, re-watching? What was your re-watching experience like? (laughs) So the thing that jumps out, right, is that Sleeping Beauty is so... um, Maleficent is so clearly the antagonist in that movie. Yeah. And and so it's a giant pivot on the narrative between between the two of them. But I'll I'll go back to the first um, the first Sleeping Beauty because it's so it's like such an iconic example of a Disney fairy tale, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's elements, right? Like I think we could talk in a second about family and true love and sort of how how people try to undo damage that has been done by other people. But the core of it, right, is that she's sort of in laying in this hundred year sleep and she doesn't age. And so much of that, that iconic image of like, she's just so placidly and beautifully laying there waiting for someone to come kiss her. Right. And like that, the implication I think behind it, right. Like is, is obscured a little bit behind, okay, it has to last a hundred years there's other people who like get caught in the brambles, but what's present in the earlier fairy tales is like other people have tried to kiss her. Right. So like mm-hmm. other people have also been there. Right. And that doesn't, that doesn't really show up in, in this, but I think also about, there's something that sticks with us about it because if you think about how many of those like Instagram pictures that people take are like, oh, Bay caught me sleeping. Like, there's something about that that imagery of like, oh, I'm just like, I'm just in repose, and it's like the time that I'm like most beautiful. And you know, there's just like, I, I'm trying to think who I can't. It's escaping me now, but like, um, it may be like Mike Berbiglia has like a, a comedy bit where he's talking about like he. Um, and it, it may not be him, but it's it's somebody who's on This American Life from time to time. But it's talking about like I I was I had a crush on this person, and they they didn't like me back. But I thought that somehow like if they could just 
like see me sleeping <laughs> that they would fall in love with me and so there's this like powerful thing that sticks with us oh that's so weird that's so shiny. it's super weird and, so weird. and but it, you know people get caught all the, like all the time right we see those things on the internet where like Someone's like, oh, like, they caught me sleeping. But, like, you can see them taking, like, the picture of themselves, yeah. like, yeah. in the TV yeah. reflection. Or, yeah. so, um, so there is something that sticks with us, right? About, like, it's, it's at the time that we're, like, kind of most, I, I don't know, desirable, which is weird to say. Because, like, lots of people are weird, gross sleepers. The other thing that like kind of jumped out at me too is, is that I think this is one of those places where we have to, where we get to grapple or have to grapple with the changing, changing cultural norms. Right. So if we think about like, okay, late 1950s, and especially if we think also about some of the earlier fairy tales that are the groundwork for Mm -hmm. this, like kissing someone while they're sleeping is in some ways like some of the least disturbing Mm -hmm. imagery that happens and and obviously you know today in 2018 we can sit here and say like oh you know you can't have sex or sexual contact with someone who is sleeping like don't initiate it when they're sleeping right and it's this place where you know, if you think about all of the other stuff that's going on culturally around, you know, women's sexuality and autonomy and bodily autonomy and how how much agency people have, you can kind of see how this like falls right off the edge of the table mm-hmm. of being on people's radar is something that's not acceptable. So it there's there's something about the true love piece that like you can see why that's so captivating and it gets paved the consent pieces get paved over really quickly. Mm-hmm. I, I saw Male- like I it was I've seen Maleficent before, right? I was telling Shannon like I was at work today, like literally walking across campus in between meetings, like watching Maleficent on my phone, <laughs> <laughs> bumping into students. Sorry, student, and <laughs> it was really interesting because the first time I saw it, I was instantly moved by it. I was like, dang, Angelina Jolie is the perfect Maleficent. Mm-hmm. Such scary. Like, in a very, like, peaceful scary. Like, I dig it. I believe it. But it was just such a gripping story of me of how how we're redefining true love. Um, <laughs> and even true love's kiss. And even how how we are reworking the dynamics of relationships with women and this idea of uh, strong sisterhoods, strong bonds um, of love that are not for the male gaze. Right. Those are, that was like amazing to me. And that, and there were definitely that stood out on one end of the spectrum, but the violence yeah. mm-hmm. stood out. The violence to Maleficent stood out on another, like, but it wasn't until um, I watched it this morning and, and like I'm very sensitive, maybe <laughs> six something in the morning. But I was able to to me as someone who is an advocate and working with students impacted by violence. I was like, yo, did I just witness like did I witness a I don't know, like a moment or, or an example of what happens when violence impacts a community and how it shifts the very dynamic 
of the community members, mm-hmm. how it shifts the very like ecosystem um, and the politics and the relationships across diversity. Like, did I just watch this? Because it was one of the most hard things to watch, but a lot of the, like, Maleficent, are you, is this you, like, in trauma now and how you're trying to ride through this trauma? Like, there was just so much that, as a professional, I was like, yo, this is, a, like, when the Stefan, right? Mm-hmm. The, guy, the king. Yeah, the king, Stephen. when he took her wings, mm-hmm. right, he drugged her. Yeah. And when she woke up, she no longer had her wings. Yeah. Right? And she was just screaming out. He was gone and took something that meant the world to her away. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, and we see this transformation that happens almost instantaneously. How, because she was the leader of her community, mm-hmm. how the very landscape changes. Yes. Right? It became very dark, very um, prickly, thorny. And the dynamics of equity you know it was clear that she especially after she realized that he assaulted her yeah because that's what it was yeah he assaulted her to take the throne and this this decision that she made to also create create this hierarchy within her own community Mm -hmm. that no one consented to like the, the the this idea of consent consent and lack of consent it it just ran rat ran rampant um, across this movie in so many different ways, and I was just like, why didn't I see this before? It was yeah astonishing. I've written about Sleeping Beauty before, and what I found really interesting and didn't expect when I first started writing about it uh, was how often the fairy tale, when retold by women, is retold as a metaphor for trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this thing that happens to you that you didn't ask for, that you did nothing to deserve. And then there is a fallow period in which nothing really grows or changes Mm -hmm. and you're very shut down. And then there's an awakening. Mm -hmm. And it's been used by, I mean, Jane Yolen does a retelling of the Holocaust that way. Um, Anne Sexton uh, narrates incest, a story of, of incest using Sleeping Beauty. The, the TV show Dollhouse, Joss Whedon <laughs> used the show Dollhouse, and the Briar Rose metaphor is, is used, again, for trauma. And what I thought was really interesting with Maleficent was that they finally put it back in the story, mm-hmm. right? But it's not Sleeping mm-hmm. Beauty. Because Aurora, and this is true in the, in the cartoon as well, she is not the main character in her own story. She is barely a character in her story. Barely. In the cartoon, she has a a, a little bit of space right at the beginning where she sings a song in the woods and then she goes and she cries. And that's about Mm -hmm. it. That's it. That's all she has in her own movie. (laughs) She dances with animals and then go, and she's having a very flirtatious relationship with that owl. And by the way, I was watching, rewatching that with my cat sitting, like one of my cats was sitting on my shoulder and Miles was looking, was watching it with me and he was looking at me and I was like, I know, owls and squirrels are not friends. This is a very unrealistic movie. Stop judging my choices. Yeah, the whole owl in the coat. That was weird. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, she's not, she's not the star of her own story. And in Maleficent, she's 
is the first time that she gets some some choice about anything. She chooses to go off into the woods and befriend and find her fairy godmother. Mm-hmm. She decides she wants to live with Maleficent. She asks her if she can come, like live in the mm-hmm. woods with her. And towards the end, she frees the wings. Like she does. Spoiler alert! Sorry. Um, <laughs> she she does everything. Or she makes so many choices in a way that that she doesn't oh. in her own movie. It's only when the Ooh. it's only in the movie about the villain that she gets to make choices. Mm-hmm. And Maleficent spends a good deal of time reacting or making choices like based in her trauma uh, until she begins to fall for Aurora, until she begins to love this child. Mm-hmm. And then she starts acting very much at odds with what she says she wants, but she's starting to kind of reassert who she is um, or who she was before begins to come out in different ways. Yeah, I think it, I think what's most interesting is like for me, again, I saw it as this range of trauma to like post-traumatic growth. Yeah. And I just, and it was very um, organic. Mm -hmm. It was almost as if Maleficent was left alone to figure out what her healing would be. Mm -hmm. I don't think she said, I don't think she set out on the path to healing. No. (laughs) (laughs) I think she has some other plans, but I think along the way she fell into a groove that felt good mm-hmm. and because at one point you know again like Melissa could have been a, a student that I served you know it, 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 and because it is just a cycle at one point it became all about how do I how can I make sure that my story is told or that is validated or success comes from vengeance or you know and so and and is this idea of getting so consumed Mm-hmm. with making sure that either A, this doesn't happen to anyone else or this doesn't happen to me again or that this person does not deserve to live a life of safety and security and happiness. I also think that uh, the it was the beautiful arc of her like connecting back like cause there's also this I feel like there was also this um, distancing from herself mm-hmm. that, al- that also happens the you know dressing in all black and hiding a lot of her features that you know yeah were really attributed to her freedom and happiness and just closing in around herself but then this this arc to a new normal mm-hmm. that was much healthier than we saw in the acute crisis stage her giving up power was really interesting to me mm-hmm. for that like she she had been a she was no longer really, she wasn't trustworthy to be queen. Like she was letting her people come to this new light, but but un, but like recognizing that they needed a different queen in order to trust that at the end, I thought was really a very wise decision, like a sign of true healing. Like I did things when I was hurt and I should maybe not be the person who's making the decisions right now. And that raises, I think, to both of those points, I think it raises some of the most complicated questions about, certainly that I encounter in my work, and I, I think Wanda probably does in hers too, is is that wounded, traumatized people sometimes do things that really wound and harm other people. Yes. And how do we grapple with that, right? Oh, like I, yes. I'm thinking yeah. about like a, a more prominent example recently would be Asia Argento, 
who was clearly victimized by Harvey Weinstein and also went on to harm someone else. And, you know, how we don't really have ways, like, we're still really stuck, actually, in some of these really fairy tale ways of thinking about trauma and harm and that, like, okay, in the best case scenario, Shannon was saying, like, you get you get this fallow period where you kind of withdraw into yourself and that pain's really internally self-focused. We have a much higher tolerance for that yeah. than yeah. when, when that rage and when that hurt is externally focused um, and haven't, haven't figured out really how to grapple with that. Yes. I, there's so many places we can go here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, how do the things, some of the things that came up um, in both, how do they, in your opinion, Meg, influence you in your anti-oppression work? What are some key things that stood out um, to you that you're like, oh, this is why I do the work that I do? So sometimes I think telling, telling better stories, we just need to like, tell better stories sometimes. And I think about that in a couple of different ways. Like I, I agree Shannon that I think Maleficent is a really interesting retelling of this story. And I, I actually like it quite a lot, but it, it feels like something that I think we need to figure out how to do, which is like, what, if we're trying to find the keys to freedom, right? Where, mm-hmm. how are the stories that we're telling to ourselves, whether it's about like, how what is true love how do you find it like what you know what so much of this damage right is wrought by trying to keep other people from making mistakes that's what's happening in in this the sleeping beauty movie right like destroying all the spindles destroying all the spinning wheels that you can't you can't keep people completely from harm and I'm talking about like everyday harm. Like yeah. I do think that we can we can work to eliminate like systemic trauma and oppression. But like you can't keep people from like everyday heartbreak. Right. And so what what kinds of damage do we sometimes do worse if we're just rather than trying to prepare people to just live a human life, trying to keep people from ever feeling the full range of human feelings. So yeah, just I think trying to figure out how to tell better stories is what I take away from it. Hi, this is Shannon. We're taking a break right now so I can tell you a little about the program bringing this podcast to you. Once Upon a Patriarchy is the first in what we hope will be a series of podcasts produced through the graduate program in writing and digital communication at Agnes Scott College. Podcasts in this series advance our vision of cultivating just and inclusive community and promoting respectful dialogue across difference through digital communication. As the faculty director of the program, I'd like to personally invite you to refresh your thinking and career with a master's degree or graduate certificate at the place where liberal arts and professional programs meet. Develop content for the web and social media, and prepare yourself for whatever comes after through digging deep into the history, theory, and cultural impact of the mediums you're working in. Build your writing and technical skills and curate your digital portfolio. Take classes at night or on weekends in person in Decatur, Georgia. Our faculty care about getting to know you and making sure your education helps you meet your goals. For real, I'm one of them. I care. We even have a full-time career coach who can help you strategize your next steps. Visit agnesscott.edu graduate programs to request information. 
Now, back to the show. I think there's a fear too. Like I've worked on several college campuses, and I feel that there is a fear of the angry survivor. Mm-hmm. There is a deadly fear of the angry survivor. I feel like not necessarily enough fear for there to spark change as fast as we would like to see it. But it's almost, I was having a conversation with someone the other day about the remarks that the current senator in Mississippi made about public hanging. The conversation around like the response and the statement that was put out and there was a press conference after the statement was put out and people were asking questions around like, you know, what do you, what do you have to say for yourself? And her response was, I said what I said in the statement. You can take it from there. And, you know, this is somebody who was not from the South, someone who was not, (laughs) (sighs) (laughs) who was just so utterly confused. And they were like, what in the world does that even mean? I said, well, this is the thing you have to realize about racism and, and, and Southern, traditional Southern racism. And I can say this because I am Mississippi bred and fed. And so, and I think that this applies here too. Like it is this idea of, oh, of the oppressor, whatever form it takes. Oh, you hurt my feelings when you acknowledge that I hurt your feelings. Yes. And you didn't go away and hurt and have your hurt feelings in a corner alone. Now you're making everybody uncomfortable with your feelings all over the place. Like now you're lacking decorum, right? And so I think that this idea of, of victimhood or survivorship, um, however one chooses to identify, having to be contained in order to make either those in power or those directly responsible feel comfortable. Right. And I think that that is also a trend that we're seeing in a lot of different areas across the country. I don't I don't think I expected to have not necessarily a connection to Stefan's character in Maleficent, but it was a it was a really interesting, like derailing that happened with with him. And so for me, seeing you know, him being presented as a as a child who was orphaned and who found Maleficent and they had a very innocent relationship and um, it grew into what they thought or what he thought was love. Um, but having in the background like this, um, these aspirations to be more than his station, right? That ultimately led to the shift in their relationship. And then it was like, I did this thing it was a thing that I needed to do because I needed to do it to get what I needed. Um, and I couldn't kill it. I couldn't kill it. I mean, I didn't kill a day. Right, you know, right. it was kind of like one of those <laughs> things, right? Like I just. It was so nice. I didn't kill her. I just assaulted her body. But I ain't kill her. She's still living. And then it was like, how dare you be angry forever? Like, <laughs> How dare you come to the, to the party? You came straight in the family reunion. And acted up like, and it was really interesting, like his whole, please don't do this. Please don't do this here, you know, and the community, you know, I I struggled with the fairies, the three fairies. I was like, yeah, y'all some sucker MCs, man. (laughs) Y'all just just rolling up in this baby shower (laughs) slash christening and y'all just, I I, I just, I, I think that there was just a lot that was happening there. But I think when, when I saw like this, 
I saw how violence or the impact of violence and lack of accountability for that violence creates and festers and and breeds insanity Mm. and breeds mass violence among leadership from from leadership I, it was just i was like oh this is too heavy and then i have to go to meetings today oh my god <laughs> i find it yeah. really interesting and i think that violence among leadership sort of thing I, I have this working theory and i don't know it's not grounded in any psychological fact it is only grounded in, i have this working theory uh that people people don't want to think of themselves as villains Mm-hmm. And yet people are capable of great evil, even good people. Right. And because we don't want to think of ourselves as villains, it's really easy to do something horrible and then pretend that it wasn't horrible and convince ourselves that it wasn't horrible and become villains. Be- and, and not through the initial act, but through the cover up through the the need to believe in our own virtue because we once we begin lying to ourselves it's really you need other lies to keep that lie up and the truth wants to reassert itself and you got to keep pushing it back down which leads to more violence and more lie and i have this i like i because i've wondered sometimes how people who have such like I'll see goodness in people that are doing horrible things and you wonder how that coexists with with the denial of the capacity, right? And I don't think I think eventually the denial of the capacity is the thing that kills the goodness. Mm-hmm. Because you have to acknowledge your capacity for evil in order to actively work not to do it. Exactly. You have to admit you can do harm in order to understand that you have to watch yourself and you have to mitigate the harm that you cause unintentionally and really check your desires against whether they will cause harm. And I've, I, I felt like Stefan was the epitome of my working theory. Like he's like, mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. that. And then once they start in one area, it's a contagion and it spreads. It's the darkness in the forest. Like it takes over and changes everything. And it can be trauma, but it can also be the decision to act in ways that cause harm and not take responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all have our own stuff, right? We all have our own stuff that we carry, but that's not an excuse mm-hmm. to enact violence. And I think about Stefan's character, and in my head, he is a perpetrator of violence. And, oh, yeah. And it was classic predatory behavior. Oh, yeah. Um, especially the the when he came back to... Um, attempt to kill her, right? But left with her wings. I I think about the fact that this is someone who grew up an orphan, right, is what we learned. Grew up an orphan and could not just always prioritize rising above his station. You know, always had his eyes set on the palace and on the kingdom and was someone who ultimately made a decision that the security that he thought he was going to be able to provide was more valuable than the livelihood um, and the emotional well-being of his friend. Yeah. Of someone he cared about, right? I, You know, that, whew, it's just heavy. It's heavy because I think I think Disney did a really 
I don't know. I would like to think that Disney was like, oh, we got a winner here, you know, like, but I, I really don't know if they really understood just how much of a fixing that they kind of did to the original retelling of Sleeping Beauty, as well as some of, like, I think that Maleficent was also like one of those um, turning point um, retellings that eventually brought us to the Moana and to the philosophy of uh, women of finding love and respect and peace within each other, right? And not for the purposes of reproducing, basically. Because mm-hmm. it's not even really love. Because when you mm-hmm. think about, like, like it could have been anybody who uh, woke up sleeping beauty, right? This idea, yeah. especially yeah. In, the, in the earlier versions, it wasn't necessarily like it was a timing. two loves kiss. It, it was wasn't just, a two loves kiss. It was just a coincidence. And in some ways, it paves the way for Frozen, right? Mm-hmm. That the yeah. central love story there is between the two sisters. Yeah, right. And so the stepping stones to having other kinds of core relationships. So these movies go into production way before they actually are released. And mm-hmm. what I'm really interested in, I haven't had time to look at it yet. It was in my hiatus from academia. <laughs> my hiatus. What I'm really interested in, in like what shifted at the Disney company or Disney Corporation that um, led to these storylines, because these critiques have been around for quite a while. Mm-hmm. The critiques are not new. The shift is new. So was it driven? I mean, everything at Disney is driven by market considerations. So, so what? Like, I really am. I'm just very interested in what pushed that, and then also who they hired as a result right because i believe it was financially motivated i do not um give lots of moral props to to disney but um or ethical props i i believe they do what they think will will sell um but that doesn't mean they can't hire people who really care about shifting the narratives and that there aren't people there who really care about doing some of this. And I'm, I'm curious. I just have, I have a great curiosity. I think what was really cool to me is that I felt like Maleficent was really great at filling in some gaps um, for the Disney cartoon. You know, I, I was telling Shannon earlier, I said, I feel like that, first of all, I was completely terrified of Maleficent in the Disney cartoon version. Mm-hmm. Completely. Like Ursula, I was never afraid of Ursula in the way I was afraid of Maleficent. Like she, I couldn't even watch it, right? And I was like, why she just show up to the plot of Man all the time? You know, like that was like, I, <laughs> there was no backstory. It was just like green smoke, poof, we here and I'm finna turn this party out kind of thing. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, she's just so mean. Unnecessary. That's how that's how, like, nine-year-old Wanda used to talk. Mm-hmm. Oh, unnecessarily made, you know? And I really, like, I, I love how we, the build-up as to how we got to the christening, right? Um, and I found myself this morning at 645. I can't say what I said this morning because we are a family show. Not really. <laughs> um, but I was like, yes, Maleficent. F it up, Maleficent. Walk through there, Maleficent. Knock the fairies out the way, Maleficent. 
make them big, Maleficent. Like, like, <laughs> <laughs> like that little gut catch. Like, yes. Maleficent. Like, get him Maleficent. You know, <laughs> like gather everybody, Maleficent. Like that's that's how. Yes. And it was really interesting how it went from the. And I think to me, like that's more telling of Disney being very very intentional yeah with how and we talked about it before like how in the past disney's cartoons othered women who other people of color period um but also othered women who did not necessarily fit this mold of women who were interested in upholding the patriarchy of uh, or upholding supremacy and punishing them right um and so i i was trained as a child to fear her. I was trained as a child to see her as different and to other her and to um, treat her as other folks treated her because she didn't look like anybody else, right, Mm -hmm. in the cartoon. But it was here that there was humanity that was, I think, that was kind of fleshed out in the story of Maleficent, and it allowed me to be able to root for her. When you were saying that you were scared of Maleficent, Cruella DeVille, I feel like, was the, was the antagonist that I was afraid of. Really? Yeah, yeah. The, she was the one that I was afraid of. I think it was but, the eyes. Like, the eyes. But you're so right, where it's like, I, if you think back, I'm like, oh, like, there's this, like, single woman. She's independently wealthy. She's an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Like She's a puppy murderer. But yo, her fashion was on point. You cannot take that from Cruella. That's fair. That's fair. Miss Deville, if you're nasty. She looked good. Yes. She looked good. She looked blessed is what she looked. And wealthy. She looked like she smelled like money. But she just had some some problems, you know? So, Meg, we are going to... I think we're on the last question now. So, and the question that I have for you is, how would you retail Sleeping Beauty? What does... Your version of Sleeping Beauty. What is it like? Take me there. Put me. Put me there. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think that Maleficent. Like, I, I really liked it, and I think it gets close, right? And I have, I have to go back to you to like, what, what is the purpose of a fairy tale, right? Mm-hmm. Is it, is it a fable? Is it like, where, where are we finding it? Because I think there's something like powerful and interesting about you know what what would it look like we sort of skip forward aurora you know she's 16 she falls into this deep sleep and i think we sort of forget that she's like still 16 when she gets woken up because she's been in this ageless sleep right and so i guess like i kind of wonder like what happens to the person like from 16 to 26 where you're trying to find your way through what, what is true love, right? Like, is it, is it your family? Is it your friends? Is it people you're in relationships with? Is it people you are sleeping with? Like, um, so that I think it is, that's my kind of interesting fairy tale Mm -hmm. is you sort of sleep through some of the, the pieces that are some of the most interesting parts of that, like that journey to like, what is true love? Hmm. Yes. You know, that really made me realize I just had a um, a mental note, a mental memory of everybody waking back up in the castle. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. how the king woke mm-hmm. back up and how jolly and how nice he was. And I was like, this is a sucker king that we got stuck with in Maleficent. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, look at this dopey king waking up 
not really worried, kind of but not, kind of cute, adorable even. I don't know why that, I, I just think there's some really, I think Disney does some interesting things with men or baby men. I don't know if y'all are plugged into Black Twitter, but um, there is definitely some conversations going around Black Twitter around men or Black men or men in general um, respecting a Black woman who basically can take the place of his mother, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of men respecting mothering women who Mm -hmm. take up the job of raising them in their adulthood. And so I think about Disney a lot when I think about that, especially older patriarchal figures. I think also, you know, I I was doing, um, if we think about fairy tales as being like, fantastical right and a chance to like peer into this fantastical world or or an idealized world i was doing a workshop with some some young people the other day and and i asked them like what would your revolutionary we were talking about hookup culture at the time like what would your revolutionary relationship culture look like in your life and so they were just sort of talking about it. Right. And, and so I think that's another interesting possibility is thinking about like what taking a chance to sort of imagine what this like revolutionary future is that we're all working towards and making a fairy tale out of that, because it helps us. It, it It's like, Oh, this is maybe not as fantastical as we imagine. It's not sci-fi. It's something we can just pull a little bit closer. I like that. I like it too. Wanda, what's your retelling? Oh, y'all. Okay, so first of all, I need more people of color. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Maleficent has been green. Maleficent has been pale. Mm-hmm. I want Maleficent to have some melanin. Mm-hmm. But I also want us. I want her to have melanin in a way that does not stereotype her as this angry, bitter black woman. Right. I. I want, yeah, I, I, I honestly, I want Sleeping Beauty to, to be woke. I just want her to be woke. I don't want her to go to sleep. I, I want her to have, I, I do think that one of the points that you brought up and that I didn't realize until now is that she actually could not even have been in her own story and we probably wouldn't have noticed. She was mm-hmm. a prop, mm-hmm. right? Very flat character. So I want to know more about her. I want to know what she, I want, if she has to go to sleep, you know, I want her to have this, this wonderful dream world where she is able to solve some of the world's ailments and comes back out of that thing, like coming out of the gate, ready to change the world. I want a sleeping beauty who is not, who is not dependent upon true love's kiss to wake up. I want Maleficent who is not harmed. I want a, I want a community that is a harm. If we're talking about the Maleficent movie, the point in which I would have I would have said cut was when he was like, "I'll be back next week," and I'm like, "No, tell him no, Maleficent, tell him no." <laughs> right? Um, and I do think that there is a layer to the story of Maleficent specifically where. We're not talking about the fact that segregation and necessary self self selecting to be with your people is not are two different things. And I think that one of the underlying stories of 
the movie of Maleficent is that you have these two kingdoms, these two worlds who live side by side for a long time. And it was just like, I just want to rule these other people. And that's what I'm going to do. I don't want that. Right. I think it's okay for actually the relationship that Maleficent and Stefan had to like, we're friends and we respect each other's differences. And, you know, like when, Stefan touched her and realized that the iron in his ring harmed her. He threw it away, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that, I think that that's very telling, right? As it relates, if we if we go back to talking about violence and consent, like, and the understanding of consent, I think there's this underlying like message in the in a lot of the old tales is that oh, couldn't just couldn't help himself, didn't understand, didn't know the difference. I think that's something that we hear all the time. But for me, the fact that Stefan knew that he had harmed her when they were children and he threw his ring away, let me understand that he knew his responsibility to not harm. And he did it anyway. Right. So I want that. Yeah. And so I think that that leaves every other point around or every other excuse around, oh, you know, we just need more education, more prevention education. No, you know when you hurt somebody and you correct yourself every day on the simple things. You know that. And so I think that, you know, I want a story that doesn't have cop-outs. I want a story that where um, there is consent education (laughs) somewhere in that story. And I don't know. I kind of see Sleeping Beauty as like this mystic who just like wakes up. It's like, yo, I just had the worst dream that if we don't get our stuff together, yo, it's going to be bad. Like there's going to be violence. There's going to be war. There is going to be assault on people's persons. And I think we need to learn um, consent education. And I think we need to learn how to be active bystanders. And I think we need to learn how to be trauma-informed and how we deal with people who are hurt. Like, I, I want more of a, and it may be boring for some, but then we'll put a little music in it. I mean, that's what Disney <laughs> did. Sleeping Beauty was also, like, a very boring yeah. cartoon. But people still believe, like, people still have feelings for it. Mm-hmm. We can take stories that people may not want to necessarily hear in this way and add some pizzazz to it. Tyler Perry making millions of dollars off of stories that not a lot of people really want to hear. <laughs> So that's how I would retail. <laughs> mm, I like it. What about you? I have wanted the same thing since I was a child for this story. I want somebody to tell Sleeping Beauty that she is cursed. I want somebody oh, to tell this child. That's such a good point. No it, one ever tells her. No one ever tells her. I want someone to tell her the fundamental truth of her life. And let her figure that out. Yeah, let her make some choices about her own life. Because every version of the story, they hide it from her. They don't tell her. And then they act like it was fate that she picked her (laughs) finger. And I'm like, it wasn't fate. It was ignorance. Mm -hmm. You never gave her the tools to protect herself. Mm. And I'm not saying bad things wouldn't happen to her. But if you never tell a child that fire is going to burn them and you never have fire around them, then the first time they see fire and it is beautiful and warm and they reach out, they're going to get burned. 
Like you have to let them know what's out there, like That's what so the world beautiful. is. That's such a beautiful analogy for so much. Yeah. It's um it struck me when I was a kid just because I always wanted to know things. And if I had found out that people, that everyone in my life had lied to me about something that important, then even waking up would not be like, there'd be, I would have lost trust in everyone around me. Right. Like, right. so the amount of d fundamental disrespect in the story for her that's what I want to change. I want people to tell her what is going on. And then I want her to grow up understanding that life is precious mm. and that she may not get as long a life or be able to live the same kind of life as other people so that she can make choices about how she wants to live. Does she want to fight that? Does she want to live every day joyfully? Does she want to, you know, like if she's, if she's, doomed to have a hundred year sleep i'd be like i'm cliff diving you know like right <laughs> i know it's not gonna get me because i have fate right right so yeah <laughs> that's true like i can do whatever like 15 years old yeah i drive off this cliff uh blindfolded because i already know what 16 gonna look like here we go <laughs> i don't know if y'all gonna make it in the car with me but i'm, I'm gonna be all right i'm fine no i get it <laughs> That's real. Just give her some choices. Give her some options and give her some sense of agency over her own life. Mm -hmm. And the fact that every adult, every adult in the story does that, just, I, I, I'm so disturbed by that. And I find that actually more disturbing than the necrophiliac rape. I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing. I, well. I don't find it more disturbing than marrying your necrophiliac rapist, but I do find it like just fundamentally the odds that you're going to run into in your life a necrophiliac rapist are low for most of us. But the odds that you're going to run into someone who doesn't give you information that you need in order to make healthy decisions for yourself are quite high. Abstinence only education. <laughs> We've come full circle. We have. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's not that I think necrophiliac rapists are good. Let's make that clear. State it plain. <laughs> Explicit statement of disavowal <laughs> of necrophiliac rapists as productive members of society. Thank we'll you. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Where are we? <laughs> <laughs> We're wrapping up. Okay. <laughs> Well, this has been, I, you know what, like, I never know what, what conversations are going to come from this. This has been, this has been dope. This has been amazing. And so, man, any final words before we um, skedaddle? That's my new word for the week, skedaddle. <laughs> it started out so dark, but I feel like we really got to a place where we could, we had three really good movie ideas here. And I just want Disney Pixar to remember that when they listen to this podcast. You think they're going to listen to this podcast? And how they can reach us <laughs> well, to executive produce these three films. Well, Indeed. Meg, just in case they do um, listen, can you let 
Disney and the rest of the world know where you can be found if you want to be found when you want to be found? Oh, that's such a great question. You know, I recently, despite in my bio saying that I am good at social media, what that means for me right now is I'm actually like really changing my relationship to social media. I'm trying to spend a lot less time on it Um, because I think it's making me maybe not as great an organizer or a community builder as I want to be. So I'm, I'm trying to spend less time on it right now. Well, if people out here in the world, if you want to get in touch with Meg, you can't. <laughs> you can you contact can reach me through, us. Reach me through Wanda. Yeah, because <laughs> we friends in real life. Uh, and I'll pass the word. Because I'll be on the social media because I'll be yeah. the one encouraging you all to like, share, and listen and enjoy. Yes. Meg, thank you so much. Thank you, friends. This has been great. 